With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me, as always, is our researcher and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Okay, the reason behind why people do certain things can be a real mystery. After Emma Gatewood did her thing, that's what people wanted to know. They kept asking her, why? She gave them a simple answer, because it was there. But biographers who wrote about the unique and extraordinary thing Emma did believed she was motivated by something much more complicated, maybe something that can't even really be expressed. We're going to get to the possible why of Emma Gatewood's achievement. But first, I better tell you the what. That part is easy. On May the 2nd, 1955, Emma Gatewood, a 67-year-old who had been made a great-grandmother many times over by her 11 children, left her home in Gallia County, Ohio. She didn't tell anybody where she was going. She only told them she was going out for a walk. Then she caught a ride across the Ohio River to Charleston, West Virginia, took a plane to Atlanta, then boarded a bus to a little town in Georgia called Jasper. At this point, she was 500 miles from home, standing on top of a mountain, carrying a handmade drawstring sack that she'd made from a yard of denim back home. Inside were 16 pounds of her belongings, a couple changes of clothing, some food items, Vienna sausage, raisins, peanuts, bullion cubes, and powdered milk. She had a small tin with some Band-Aids, iodine, and a jar of Vicks VapoRub, a shower curtain to put over her if it rained, a Swiss Army knife, a flashlight, and a journal. She ducked into the woods to swap her house dress for dungarees and tennis shoes. And this is where her journey began. Because Grandma Gatewood was standing at the southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. 
It's the longest continuous foot trail in the world that snakes along the top ridges of mountains from Georgia all the way up to the tip of Maine, over 2,000 miles. And she was determined to hike it. Now, the Appalachian Trail was first visualized by a man named Benton McKay, who once stood atop the Stratton Mountain in Vermont and imagined this ridgetop trail running through the wilderness the entire distance of the range. He described his dream, and others joined him. And from 1931 to 1937, this primitive trail was mapped out and marked. By 1955, only half a dozen people had ever hiked this thing nonstop, and none of them women, let alone a great-grandmother who might otherwise be expected to be crocheting Afghans in a rocking chair or tending to her garden. When Emma stood on that mountaintop and cast her gaze to the northeast, only two people in the world knew she was there. Her cousin in Atlanta, Myrtle Trowbridge, who had put her up the night before, and the cabbie who dropped her off. Her kids had no idea. She had been dreaming about this for months. She didn't tell them because she didn't want them to put up a fuss. After retiring from her job at a nursing home the year before, she started preparing by walking around the block. She worked her way up to 10 miles a day. But she knew meandering around the neighborhood could not fully prepare her for what lay ahead. There would be mountains and rivers to cross, bears, wolves, and snakes in her way. And this was, in some parts, a lawless country. She knew there may be backwater outlaws to contend with. Much of my research for this episode comes from a book called Grandma Gatewood's Walk, and author Ben Montgomery weaved in some great history that set the stage for this. After the Native Americans who once lived here were forced out and relocated to Oklahoma, the range was populated by immigrants, mostly Irish, Scottish, and English families. Many of them were families who started moving west, then decided they'd traveled far enough and put down roots. But the topography of the undulating mountains were an obstacle to socialization. They were cut off from other settlements, so they had to learn to be self-sufficient and not dependent on anyone else. They wore handmade clothes, ate corn pone and fried pies, and prided themselves on their recipes for moonshine. Their isolation also made them suspicious of other people, and they resisted government interference at every turn. Here's a wonderful quote from Montgomery's book. They were proud people, most of them, the durable offspring of survivors. They lived suspended between heaven and earth, and they knew the call of every bird, the name of every tree, and where the wild herbs grew in the forest. Many of them worked for the only employers around, mines and mills. But at the time Emma Gatewood was ready to explore this unique brand of American culture, those jobs were being lost to machines, and people were turning to less than legal activities to make ends meet. But Emma didn't feel like a complete stranger. Southeast Ohio is the foothills to the Appalachians. 
she had some idea of what to expect. Grandma Gatewood put her house dress in her sack, swung it over her shoulder, and started her walk over Mount Oglethorpe. That was the first leg of a journey she knew was going to take her at least five months. She actually got lost that first night. She missed a switchback, and dark was descending. She found a farmhouse and knocked on the door, and a couple invited her to spend the night. They would be the first of a cast of hundreds of people that she would meet along the way. It only took a couple of days, and she started having to deal with swollen feet and those aching bones. She was pushing 15 miles a day, but she was in no particular hurry. She would stop to watch a deer running in the distance or stop to write in her journal about the way sunlight illuminated a patch of fluorescent pink and purple azalea bushes. She was not a fan of sleeping outside. She tried it and found herself shaking field mice out of her hair. As often as she could, she tried to end her day in an area that offered hope for a house or a church or some lean-to or abandoned shack she could find. But sometimes her efforts to negotiate a bed for the night didn't work out. Before she left Georgia, she wrote of approaching a woman. The woman was chopping wood and spitting tobacco. It didn't appear she had bathed in weeks. Her hair was matted, her apron caked with filth. Have you room for a guest tonight? Emma asked her. We've never turned anyone away, the woman told her. Then the woman took Emma to meet her husband, who was rocking on the porch. He was immediately suspicious. Is Washington paying you to make this trip, he demanded of Emma. And then, does your family approve of what you're doing? They don't know, she told them honestly. You'd better go home then. You can't stay here, he said. There was a lot to learn from and about these people, but Emma knew better than to argue. She hefted her bag and continued down the path. She found a small shed on a logging road that night and tucked herself in till morning. While Emma's children still didn't know what their mother was up to, they wouldn't have been surprised by her love of nature. She often took them on walks through the forests and hills of their home in Gallipoli, Ohio. She'd teach them to recognize bird songs and how to watch for snakes and how to identify plants with medicinal uses. What they didn't know was how she'd been thinking about this hike for years, actually. It was a 1949 National Geographic in her doctor's office that caught her attention. At the time, only one person, a 29-year-old soldier named Earl Schaefer, had finished the trail. By the start of Emma's hike, six years later, five more had done it, all men. And here's another thing her kids didn't know. Emma actually tried to give it a go a year earlier and called it off when she almost met a tragic fate. In July of 1954, she left home and made her way over to Augusta, Maine. That late in the year, she figured she'd better start in the north and stay ahead of the cold by heading south. But just two days into her hike, she missed a marker and became lost in the woods. She couldn't find her way back, and after several days, she ran out of food. She later wrote in her diary, 
I did not worry if it was to be the end of me. It was as good a place as any. Then one day, remarkably, she stumbled back onto the path. She ran into some men. You've been lost, one of the men said to her. Not lost, Emma said, just misplaced. The park rangers admonished her and acted annoyed, one of them telling her he wouldn't want his mother doing this sort of thing. They put her in a monoplane and then on a train and shipped her back to Bangor, Maine. In her hotel room that night, she looked at herself in the mirror. Broken glasses, dirty and torn clothes, a bruised eye, hair that hadn't been combed in days, swollen feet. She returned home and never told a soul what she had done. But all the while, she was planning for the next time. So here it was, attempt number two. There were times she would walk for days without seeing another soul on the trail. And times she would walk miles out of her way trying to find shelter for the night. On occasion, she would accept a ride to a nearby house, but only if they promised to take her back to the same spot on the trail the next day. If she couldn't find shelter, she'd warm smooth stones in a fire and sleep on top of them to keep her aching back warm. Sometimes when she ran low on food and there was no other option, she would fill up on wild strawberries and sip rainwater that collected on objects. Emma continued through the Great Smoky Mountains and replaced her tennis shoes for the first time in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. She took a bus into town to buy them, then took the bus back to the trail. In June, she'd been gone an entire month, and her children still had no idea where she was or what she was up to. But Emma's secret wasn't going to hold for much longer, because on June 20, as she walked through a mountaintop in Virginia... A car pulled over, and two well-dressed men got out and introduced themselves. A reporter and a photographer. They'd been called by a shopkeeper Emma had patronized the day before, and they couldn't wait to share her story. At first, Emma said no. If people knew she was on the trail, they might try to find her, even harm her. But they didn't let up, and after a couple of days, she relented. The Roanoke Times broke the news of Emma Gatewood's adventure with the headline, Ohio Woman, 67, Hiking 2,050 Miles on Appy Trail. Emma decided maybe this was the time to let her kids know where she was. So she picked up some postcards at the next door she came across and dropped them in the mail. The reporters kept coming, each town wanting to announce Emma Gatewood's arrival. Somewhere in Pennsylvania, Sports Illustrated caught up with Emma. They would end up doing several stories on her. Back home in Ohio, reporters found her kids. One son, Monroe, told a reporter that when they hadn't heard from their mom in a long time, they suspected she was up to something. We did not know for sure what she was doing until yesterday, he said, although we were beginning to have our suspicions. Mother is a great lover of the outdoors, enjoys perfect health, and can outwalk most persons many years younger. Later, her daughter Lucy would say, we didn't worry about her because she always took care of herself. And son Nelson would say, I didn't know where she was or what she was doing, but that was normal. The attention had changed perceptions. You know those first people who met her on the trail in Georgia, how they were 
bothered by her gumption and insisted she go home and be a proper grandma. But now people were cheering her on. They started looking for her on the trail, asking to have their picture taken with her. As she hiked through the New York portion of the trail, nine high school kids joined her for part of her walk and found themselves talking and laughing as she shared her adventures. One of the girls told her, I wish my grandmother was like you. At dusk, those boys led her to a spring while they collected leaves to make her bed before departing. This attention and occasional company is not to make light of the very serious challenges Emma was still facing on that trail. Here's an example. In August, incessant rains had turned a creek into a river and the bridge was washed out. The only way to continue on the trail was to go through the river. Emma tried wading in on her own, but when she realized the current was going to wash her away, she waded. Finally, two boys who came upon her on the trail offered to tie Emma between them like a human sandwich. They entered the water and fought against a roaring current that reached their necks. Later, one of those boys would confess he thought they were done for. But they made it. In September, a story by the UPI went over the wire. Emma was nearing the end of the Appalachian Trail. It came on September 25. She was alone when she reached the highest point of Mount Katahdin in Maine, the first spot in the United States to receive the sun's rays each morning. She had spent five months hiking mountains through 13 different states. I did it, she said to the sky. I said I'd do it, and I've done it. So now we've reached our original question. Why? Of all the stories that were written about Emma Gatewood during her journey up the trail, they focused on her hike and the adventures she was having on that walk. It was all about the present. None attempted to tell the story of her past because Emma had never told them. But it's the past where her biographers believe you'll find the real reason for her long walk. They guessed that she wasn't so much walking to something as walking away from something. You see, Emma Gatewood was the victim of horrific domestic abuse. Emma met her husband in Crown City, Ohio, along the Ohio River, when he rode up beside her on his horse. P.C. Gatewood was considered the catch of Gallia County. He had a teaching degree and taught in a one-room schoolhouse, and his family owned a furniture factory in Gallipolis. In this area, that amounted to royalty. Emma was the daughter of a Civil War veteran who was a drinker and a gambler. Her family's world was a log cabin where 15 children slept four to a bed. She was 18, and he was 26 when he asked her to marry him. The honeymoon didn't last long. Three months into the marriage, he struck her for the first time, drawing blood. She wanted to leave him then and there, but where would she go? She had no money, no job, no education. She had quit school in the eighth grade to help look after her younger siblings when her father stopped working, so she stayed. In 1908, she gave birth to the first of her 11 children, but motherhood was only part of her responsibility. 
PC had given up teaching and bought an 80-acre farm on Big Creek, and it became her job to haul rocks, plant tobacco, pick apples, and tend the cows. Most folks in town thought highly of PC Gatewood. He paid his farmhands well. They remembered him as smart and a capable teacher. He even had a good humor around others. But his children would later testify to his mean streak, the way he once beat a stubborn horse half to death with a leather strap, the way he would discipline them with briar switches and fire pokers. In 1924, he killed a man. He was charged with manslaughter after his temper led to an argument that left one Hiram Johnson dead. He was found guilty and ordered to pay $50,000. His prison time was suspended because he had nine children at that time that needed support. But he had to sell half the farm to pay that fine, and that made him meaner. The kids saw the black eyes and bloodied lips that Emma was dealt daily. They carried memories of their father grabbing her by the hair and throwing her to the ground or punching her in the face with his fist. Sometimes the children would find him choking her and work together to pull him off, which allowed her time to run away into the woods. She spent a lot of time in the woods, healing and looking for solace in the quiet nature where she could hide. She would write poems about her experiences in the forests. It wasn't until they were adults that Emma confided in them that P.C. Gatewood's sexual appetite was equally painful and insatiable and demanded multiple times daily. P.C. was able to convince neighbors that the screams coming from his house were from a wife that had mental issues, that she was insane and he was considering putting her in an asylum. They seemed to believe him. In 1937, when she thought she might not survive another beating, she left. She told the children, still living at home, that she loved them, instructed the older kids to look out for the younger ones, and then slipped away in the night. She went as far as she could, all the way to California, where her mother and brother had relocated. She stayed for nearly a year, while PC sent her promises that he would change. Eventually, she went home. But by then, they were financially destitute. They had to let the farm go, and PC moved them to a smaller property in West Virginia. And the beatings began anew and lasted for two years. Emma endured her last beating on a Sunday in September of 1939. 15-year-old Nelson walked in to find his father punching his mother. Her teeth were broken her left ear black and torn, her ribs cracked. Nelson held his father down while his mother escaped into the woods. PC left that house and returned later that day with the police. They arrested Emma, and she spent the night in a jail cell. The next day, the town mayor had Emma brought before him. He knew a battered woman when he saw her. He apologized invited her to stay at his home until she could get back on her feet, and found her a job in a restaurant. Meanwhile, back at home, PC took most of the furniture out of the house and left, leaving behind three minor children. Fifteen-year-old Nelson was left caring for two younger siblings. 
Eventually, Emma was granted a divorce and custody of the children. They returned across the Ohio River to Gallia County. So, knowing this part of her history, people couldn't help but wonder if Emma's five-month hike along the Appalachian Trail was some sort of homage to nature, an appreciation for the way the woods would conceal her from her abusive husband and give her a chance to heal. She never said so. The why was always answered with, because it was there. By the way, her first hike was not her last. While her 1955 adventure made her the first woman to hike the trail nonstop, in 1957, she would become the first person, man or woman, to walk the world's longest trail twice. And she hiked the entire trail a third time in 1963, when she was 75 years old. She died in 1973 at the age of 85. This is just a snapshot of Emma Gatewood's life and her hike. In the book I referred to earlier, Grandma Gatewood's Walk, Ben Montgomery does a nearly day-by-day account of her adventure using her diary and interviews. So if you're feeling at all inspired by Emma's story, check it out. Also, a shout-out to an Ohio Mysteries listener, Dawn Cohen, who's the one who turned us on to this story and Montgomery's book. That's it for our 10-Minute Mystery. We'll see you Sunday for our next full-sized episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle, and uh, I, I turned and looked, and it was, it was already moving away. And it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75-degree angle straight down, almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.